Tanse, Oki, Bonzu, and hello, and welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Chantal Chagnon. I am Cree, Ojibwe, and Métis from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, which is in Treaty 6 territory. But I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we stand, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. This is the home of the Treaty 7 people, the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, of Siksika, Gainai, and Pagani, the Beaver people of Tsutsina, and the Stony Nakoda of Morley, which includes Chiniki, Bears Paw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge Métis Region 3, for we are walking in their footsteps. You are tuned in to a new episode of Writer's Block on CJSW. CJSW's Writer's Block broadcasts out of the University of Calgary campus radio station at CJSW 90.9 FM, located on Tree 7 territory. Writer's Block airs at 8 o'clock p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've ever missed our show live, you can check out our podcast at www.cjsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a brand new student-driven collective. We will be featuring inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and creative segments, so stay tuned. Today on our show, we have interviews with Mark Lynch and Sabrina Samuel, as well as fiction and poetry readings from Rachel Latchman Singh and Crystal Smith. Let's get started. We would like to provide a quick content warning for our listeners. This month's episode of Writer's Block contains strong language, adult themes, as well as themes of both physical and domestic violence. Rachel Latchmansing is a Guyanese-Canadian writer from Toronto. She is currently pursuing her degree in creative writing. Her work has appeared in Manola Review, Brain Magazine, The Malahat Review, Augur Magazine, Carte Blanche, Filling Station, forthcoming, and elsewhere. Without further ado, here is Rachel. Hi everyone, today I will be reading from my short story, The Species is Dead, which was originally published in Manola Review. The Species is Dead. Mum buys a new fridge on Monday and moves the old one into the basement, so now we have two fridges and Janice is dead. This isn't the first time Janice has died. This isn't the first fridge Mum has replaced. Our Janice isn't the only Janice that has died since March. Mrs. Raymond from across the street dragged hers from the lake three weeks ago. Patricia Slouch's Janice went missing on Easter weekend and was toiled up with the potatoes that grow in the Denby's backyard four days later. We only find out our Janice is dead when Mum tells us she's been sunbathing by the poolside since yesterday. Mum is going to take care of it, but we aren't allowed anywhere near. She says the Janices are poisonous, invasive, contagious. We're too young to know what any of these things mean. Sunbathing shouldn't lead to death. That's why we have SPF. This is what one of us says this morning. 
But at some point between noon yesterday and noon today, Janice stopped thumbing through the magazine, stopped rubbing her wrist with the paper perfume samplers, stopped adjusting her sunshades so they'd stop pinching her nose, and died. No one knows where the Janices come from. We don't know how they reproduce or why they've stayed. The intro biology students at the community college think it might be a genetic mutation. The high schoolers who sit on the cathedral steps think they're made in a factory we just haven't found yet. We watched the news coverage with Mum when the outbreak started last year. The senator declared each home would have a live-in Janice, like a backup mother. Mum threw the remote at the TV. We now watch Mum through the basement window, our bodies hidden by the bush of magnolia she planted last spring. Mum's a migraine, one of us says. That makes no sense. You can't be a migraine. But Mum is, the little of us says. She fans herself with a magazine and bites into a block of gorgonzola. Mum eats cheese when she's having a breakdown. We all know this. She used to load the shopping cart with Monterey Jack. Maybe Mum is a migraine. She disappears out the basement door, the gorgonzola cupped in her palm like a golf ball. We don't see her for many minutes. She's probably moving Janice now. You don't know that. She's going to put her in the fridge. But she can't put her in the fridge. The pot roast could be in there. That's sacrilegious. The basement door opens again. We don't see Mum at first. We don't see Janice. We only hear clanging, the drag of a garden hoe against concrete. Don't you think that's sad? What's sad? What Mum does to the Janices. Mum doesn't do anything to the Janices. Then why does she have a garden hoe? We don't have a garden. And this is true. We don't understand why Mum told the delivery men she didn't need help moving the old fridge to the basement when they dropped it off this morning. We still don't know how it got down there. We don't understand why Janice is dead. We had other Janices, a seamstress, a party planner, a meal prepper, but they're all dead now. First it was dressmaker Janice, crushed in the driveway after she sewed each of us mittens for Christmas. Then it was party planner Janice, dangling from the chandelier after she hand-frosted our birthday cake. The most recent was meal prepper Janice, foaming at the mouth after she bought us chocolate-dipped cones from the ice cream truck. Mum found all of their bodies, just like she found our current Janice an hour ago. This Janice was our sculptor. Once, she made Mum a flower pot for the kitchen and a smiling Buddha for the living room. Three days ago, she left a terracotta cat on top of the toaster oven with a note that said, For the kids. We later found it smashed in the sink. She stayed silent through the night and ate clay from between her fingers every other day. We saw her mostly when she sat by the pool on her day off. Sometimes she sipped mimosas from a technicolor goblet. Sometimes she nipped the tips of her fingers with tweezers. Sometimes she dipped her toes in the pool one by one, like she was nervous it would pull her under. Mum materializes again and flicks on the stoplight. She doesn't know we watch her through the barred window or that we've been waiting here since the second fridge was delivered. You can't even see her. See who? Janice. There's two of them down there. Don't be a conspiracy theory. If Mum is in the basement, Janice is too. And this is right, because when Mum stoops down and tugs on something, out comes Janice from the shadows. Janice looks the same dead as she looked alive. The only difference is that she blinks less and eats clay less 
and were sure even dead Janice could do both of these things if she wanted to. Her hair pastes to her skull and reminds us of Mum's party wig, the one she wore on Halloween. Mum once said she liked Janice's hair, crow-like and long to her hips. Mum now wears yellow rubber gloves that hit her elbows and coveralls the color she painted the living room, rust. Something shimmers, and we see it. Mum's garden hall, power-washed last weekend by Candy Rivolo a block over. It takes Mum three tries to spread Janice's hands and legs so she starfishes, like she's one of those frogs we saw dissected on the Science Network. I told you Janice was down there. Mum is a butcher. She could be a mortician. I heard the senator is looking for morticians. We don't look because our stomachs are upset, and we know Mum forgot to buy more gravel. The window is closed, so we hear nothing but a liquefied thud, and one of us thinks it could be Mum's gorgonzola, but we remember she only had a bite left. We cover each other's eyes and plug each other's ears, and only stop when the thud's quiet and Mum is locking a Tupperware container, sitting on it when it doesn't snap in place. Do you think she... It's probably the pot roast. She didn't make that much pot roast. I told you she puts the Janices in the fridge. Mum sits on the Tupperware, fingers glinting, and stays like that for a few minutes. We don't move from behind the magnolia bush. We don't know if she sees us. We don't know what's in the Tupperware, even though we know what's in the Tupperware. Mum turns and pulls out a ball of saran wrap from her coveralls. She stands and lifts the container off the ground. Mum jars the fridge open with her shoulder and sets the Tupperware on the biggest shelf. From the freezer, she pulls out an identical container. She shuts the door and wipes her hands on her coveralls. She finishes unwrapping the last bite of gorgonzola and pops it in her mouth. She chews. She swallows. She yells that it's time for dinner. CJ, 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 SW. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Mark Herman Lynch is the president of Filling Station Magazine and a PhD candidate in English at the University of Calgary, and most recently, the author of his debut novel, Arborescent. The book is all at once imaginative and horrific. It delves into deep and complex topics that are relevant to readers today, like gender, race, and the role of religion in contemporary society. But Mark explores these often debated issues in surprisingly new and thoughtful ways. In our interview together, we discussed everything from the relationship between colonization and immigration to the line between fiction and reality, and the role of horror in our everyday lives. Are monsters always who they appear to be? This is Arborescent, in Mark's own words. Since some listeners may not have had the chance to read your book, how would you describe it in two to three sentences? So Arborescent is a book that has broken up into three sections that follows three different characters and their lives, even though they don't know each other, they all live in the same complex called Cambrian Court and their lives become uh, irrevocably intermingled because of some surrealistic and strange events that happen within this space. As I call it on the back of the book, it's kind of a 
psychic unfurling. <laughs> what about the name arborescent? Where did you come up with it? The name arborescent, it just denotes tree-like or tree-like constructions. And because one of the characters goes through a sort of arborescent type devolution or evolution, you might say, that's how the name of the book came about. Okay, so personally, I thought the book was beautiful and sensitive and thoughtful. And there were so many insights in there that just made me think about life and, and people. Um, so the phrase near the start of the book, spoken by a mysterious character, if you don't mind me reading an excerpt, um, yeah. the sun is larger than a million earths. The stars are billions of miles away. But for most of us, when we look at the stars, we don't feel insignificant. In fact, we're buoyed. The stars do more than exist along the way. They connect us through history and through time, from Blackfoot to the Greeks. There's a spiritual dimension that is exempt from empirical measures. So to me, this quote really highlights the mystical quality of the story, but your book is equally disturbing at times. You never shy away from trauma or complex emotions. You even reference a lot of Japanese folklore, specifically ghosts and ghost stories. Where do you draw your inspiration from? And what was your intention with the book? I guess I draw my inspiration from a myriad of different places. Firstly, I go back to like poetry and poetics. But uh, I also kind of really, I, I really love the the racial dynamics because I'm mixed race myself. So I'm kind of caught within this strange heritage of trying to hold on or grasp a heritage that I have lost, so to speak, that doesn't feel fairly natural to me, but also a Canadian heritage that doesn't really feel natural to me. And so a lot of the characters within the book, they go through this space of non-belonging. And I think that's a lot of what they are going through is because almost all the characters are of immigrant parents or immigrants themselves. And they're just trying to figure out themselves in the world, really. Um, and the ways in which the society that I've created, at least, figures them. Uh, it's almost like they don't belong in that space, right? They don't belong sexually. They don't belong physically. They don't belong racially. So I think that's, that's kind of where I draw my inspiration. That, and also, I guess, right, from my own anxiety and depression, which I think... <laughs> you can see is laced throughout the book. <laughs> yeah, I find going to your first point, it's interesting to me how you've placed all these characters, like you said, who are living their own lives, but they have things in common that they might not, you know, that they kind of notice towards the end of the book and also the location that they're put into, putting them all into this rundown building um, and coping with those elements. Yeah, I really wanted them to, because especially when we think about just condo living or apartment living. It's it's very isolated. You're in a building with so many different people, but you never meet them, right? And so I really wanted to kind of make that connection and then showcase all these different stories that are happening almost at the same time. Because I think I think I get this across in the book that really each section almost goes back through the same time period, except that it's exaggerated each time. So things change, but not quite. It's still the same space. The weather is moving in the exact same direction. The time frame is in the exact same direction, but what's happening is that each section is changing based upon the the character's relationship with that space and the characters within it. So I think that's what I was trying to get at. I don't yeah. know if that answers your question. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And what about, do you think, like on a broader scale, it's obviously set in Calgary. I thought it was really interesting as a Calgarian to read all these places and really be able to situate myself in them and imagine the landscape that we're in uh, to you. Do you think that the story could have been written in a different city? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that 
at the very beginning, I didn't think I was writing about Calgary. I kind of really wanted to almost pull a William Faulkner and uh, create my own Yoknapatafa, right? This imaginary county. <laughs> uh, but the more I started writing, the more I realized that there are very, very specific place names, particularly that we sort of pass over. And I really wanted to kind of make sure that those were brought to the forefront. And so the more I was started writing about the spaces and the city and the geography of it, the more I realized I had to write about Calgary, but I didn't want to use the name Calgary. So I, I brought it back to McKinstis, the traditional Blackfoot name for this space. Do you see any parallels? Because you're talking about the history of uh, people who lived here before, and we could talk about the colonial aspect of it as well. Do you see any parallels between maybe your lived experience as an, a child of an immigrant? And if you find any sort of yeah parallels between you and, and say, like the indigenous population here? Well, it's interesting as an immigrant, and this is something that I'm coming to, or I guess I'm first generation immigrant. So that means my mother was a landed immigrant and I was born in uh, Fort McMurray. It's interesting to think that my, I, I really don't think that there is any crossover correlation between my experiences and indigenous experiences, because really what it is, is that as an immigrant, I am part and parcel of this colonizing project, right? And a lot of immigrants, I think, feel a sort of uh, push or impetus to abide by the colonizing project in order to kind of be included, right? This is kind of part of the conditional acceptance of being an immigrant, is that you abide by the superstructure that is given to you, that you have to meet this criteria. And by meeting that criteria, then you're included. If you don't meet that in criteria, you can be housed. So it, it's interesting to think about, I really wanted to talk about the ways in which this, this space is saturated with oil and ge like geographical kind of, <laughs> even the word Cambrian, right, is steeped in a sort of geography that is way beyond us, but that is completely usurped for purposes of production of oil, right? It just is a, is a one-dimensional usurpation of a space for, <laughs> for a capitalist venture. Yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question fully, but that's kind of how I was thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wonder if that in any way ties in because there's definitely an abstract feel to your to your novel. Um, do you, in terms of time, you're pretty specific about space, but time seems to be talking a lot about black holes. And do you think that that in any ways plays into what you were talking about? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to think about how I don't know if I have this idea completely fleshed out. But uh, it's interesting to think about how the way in which time functions in the book um, is, it's absurd. Uh, it's, it's really kind of plays on this idea. Of, like, I mean, the entire book is absurd. It's an it's a absurdist, dark humor book. Mm -hmm. And so by playing with time in that exact same way, it's actually just kind of asking us to rethink something that we think is stable, mm -hmm. um, that we think is linear and has some kind of forward momentum or trajectory. It's particularly connected with, you know, this feeling of exponential growth, positivism, that things that we do now naturally kind of cascade to some kind of positive future, or productive, melioristic kind of construction. So I guess that's what I was trying to play with. I was trying to say, time is screwy. And also, I just wanted to be fun. <laughs> I just wanted to make fun of it and be playful. So it's not all theoretical, I guess. Did you have any pieces that you wanted to read? Uh, so the section that I'm about to read is from Nolan Buckle's section. He's the first protagonist, quote unquote, 
He's the first narrator in the book. And essentially what's happening here is that he's starting to suspect that he might, there might be something wrong with him, that there's something growing within him. So this is Nolan Buckle's section. His stomach burbled. He imagined his belly harbored a raging microcosm complete with its own climate and weather patterns. Had his process of becoming nothing given way to new life? Did the green sprig emerge from the recesses of a black hole? Time allows frogs, sinkholes, and big bangs to become facts, just more parts of the natural order. So why not the process of becoming a tree? Indeed, even after his father exploded, Nolan's initial hysteria calmed to a soft simmer, and then into a shrug of acceptance. No doubt, his father's explosion was nothing more than matter turning into energy, nothing more than the nature of E equals MC squared. Similarly, he could be a vehicle for nature. It's so interesting to me because there's so much discussion about emotion versus reason, you know, and in it, even though that's such a focus of it, when you talk about the body, there's a huge emphasis on the stomach and the gut, not like the mind or the heart, but it's all in the gut. And was that something that you actively thought about? I love that analysis. I, well, I really wanted, so I think we were thinking about the the first section of the book. I really wanted the main character to be, because he is, uh, and people might hate this or might be attracted to this, but he is a sort of incel type character. Incel being, just for people who might not know the term, is somebody who's an involuntary celibate. It's sort of connected with men's right activism and these types of, I, I think, I don't want to overstep, but hateful organizations. So he's somewhat of that. And so what he does is he tries to take everything and tries to manipulate it into a logic or a scientific logic, even the abstract or the absurd or the mystical or the spiritual. So everything that happens to him is, even love, he even tries to like transform love into the logical, paradigmatic, uh, math or even mathematical equation that would allow him to kind of situate it for himself and understand it, but also control it. So I really wanted to have him, <laughs> that was his, that was his conflict, is empirical with the absolute absurd of his situation and how he marries the two. Yeah, it's interesting because then to me with the gut, you've got like wisdom of the gut, you know, it's almost, could it even be an in-between place? Because it's, you don't have to think about it. It's, it's emotional, but also from science we're finding, it's also a place of its own logic, its own sense-making. So it's really, it's an interesting, yeah. Wait to talk particularly about. how serotonin is built in the gut and affects yeah affects the brain chemistry absolutely yeah right. totally totally throughout the book the line between real and imaginary is blurred fictitious figures from folklore are quite literally brought to life at one point hatch even imagines her friends as actually being the characters that they're playing in her theater production was the same true for you while writing the book do you take a lot of inspiration from real life i think the entire book is taken from either conversations that I've overheard. Like, so a lot of characters are a sort of amalgamation of me and my neurosis. (laughs) Um, And then situations that have been described or told to me, uh, or even uh, conversations that I've had with people. So a lot of the book is actually repurposed. It's almost like what I've done is I've written down everything that I could that everybody has given me. Uh, and then I've repurposed it, moved it around, and then created characters out of that. So the juxtaposition between those instances or situations creates some kind of spark for people, for a person to emerge. And that person became 
Hachiku, or that person became Zadie, or that person became Nolan. And it was a very struggle, it was a struggle because I didn't know who any of these people were, even like three years into writing the book. Mm -hmm. So, and then slowly they kind of coalesced. Hopefully, hopefully they coalesced. <laughs> and I also thought it's interesting because there's a lot of what I, who is supposed to be horrific um, in the book, like what you'd typically associate it with, like in the Japanese character that comes in. Boywa, yeah. Yeah, she's the one who's supposed to be kind of terrifying, but in a way she ends up not being the terror. It's kind of the normal people around, you know, quote unquote normal, like regular day people. And that's actually what's more horrific than the horror of the story. Yeah, the monsters are people, not ghosts, right? So yeah, it, it's interesting that we're always afraid of the ghosts or the the ethereal or the transcendental, the intangible. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's the tangible, horrific things that people do. And to tell you the truth, I mean, like any good horror, and I think I've, people have said that this is a book that is connected with the horror genre, and I'll I'll accept that. Uh, but with any good horror, you have a very common issue, an everyday issue that you then kind of exaggerate or, you know, blow up. And in this case, it's about land ownership. <laughs> so it's literally the landlord, the person that we see every single day that becomes this sort of villainous monster. Yeah, so I really wanted to play with that. If you would like to read Mark's novel for yourself, it's available for purchase on both Amazon and at Chapters. Or you could support a local Calgary bookstore and pick it up today at Shelf Life Books. CJSW really ties the room together. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Crystal Smith is published in ARC Poetry Magazine, Room Magazine, QWERTY Magazine, The Maynard, and elsewhere. Crystal won Subterrain Magazine's Lush Triumphant Literary Awards for Creative Nonfiction in 2020. She has a chapbook forthcoming with Frog Hollow Press and is a PhD student at the University of Calgary in creative writing. This is her poem, Sonic Montage. weed. That's what you always called me. Star cruiser, manx witch, dork. Those are some other things you called me too. Hissing feline, needy, sick. You were born in 1973, so your favorite was to call me kid and pontificate about how men shouldn't have opinions until they're well past 40. You are 39 and reading me Bukowski. I hate Bukowski. There's a bluebird in my heart that... I'm sitting on the floor of your house, in the kitchen. You tell me if you had a couch, I'd be sleeping on it. Do you? Breeder, breeder, breeder. Don't make me argue over semantics, you said. Sardonic, snide, acerbic. That's what I call you, but I never say. So I like to think you're a Brillo pad, and you're green and steely. You always rough me up.
I'm 23, sitting in the University of Montana. Metal radiators, rusty heat, warm air, squelches moisture until throats burn. The class is anthropological museology. I'm reading lots about postmodernism and mediating knowledge. I'm learning about the subjectivity of human experience, the failure of the American Anthropological Association to adjudicate grave ethical issues. Being a social scientist means ethical carte blanche. You don't know, I have tender skin. I told you about children. You told me you couldn't stand the thought of small jackets and small shoes and small shirts strewn along the hardwood floors, treasure map markers to outside where you keep your boat and motorcycles and cars. Shithead, freak stick, asshat. Those are some other names you said. Wouldn't it be comical if it wasn't so sad? My professor drives a motorcycle. He brings his helmet to class every day. He's got a black leather jacket. An earring hangs from his wrinkled ear, his body bigger. Thick boot on desk. Sometimes I think about picking you and your son up. Then I get upset. That's something else you said. I ask my professor a question one morning. Slushy snow, concrete floor department. What is the role of subjectivity in the nomenthetic organization of civilization across time and space? Near me, boot on vacant desktop. Well, what do we have here? A pomo-humanist? Solidarity with motorcycle helmet and big, bad, black boots. He puts two hands on desk, covering notes. Let me ask you this. If I took your head and smashed it into your desk right now, would you be able to say it objectively hurts? Would someone be able to objectively observe that blood is indeed running out of your nose? I'll come and get you from that place, you promised me. But I limp through halls, Lysol disinfectant, and CT scan gamma rays. I'm indisposed, you pandered. Even when you're drunk, your voice is even flat. Dillweed. That's what you called me. I'm sitting in a classroom, and I ask my professor why he doesn't interview the indigenous people whose lives and history he excavates on Rapa Nui. I'm sitting in a psychology class, and my professor says that statistical probabilities are the only metric used in understanding human behavior. I'm sitting. Okay, I'm sitting. I'm sitting across the desk from a male social worker. He tells me my story is not credible because I did not press charges. He tells me to leave. And I guess that's where art intersects theory. There's a secret society running the art scene in Calgary. 
they call themselves CJSW. This program contains some very strong language and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. I usually host ArtsLink on the first Monday of each month where I talk to visual and performing artists. Today I'm on Writer's Block with an interview with Sabrina Samuel, poet and UFC alumna, to talk about her new book of poetry, She Was. First of all, introduce yourself and tell me about your practice of surrender living. Sure. My name is Sabrina Samuel. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm from Treaty 6 and 7. I live in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada, and I just started an online mental health community called Surrender Living uh, at the beginning kind of of the pandemic. And before that, it was very yoga focused, and now it's very mental health focused. And what made you decide to focus on mental health? Well, definitely there's a huge crisis pending here, and we're seeing it already now, um, just in this past year. Um, And so I really feel that it's important for people with lived experience to use that in any way possible to help other people. Okay. And how do you incorporate poetry into your practice? So poetry, as you know, being somebody that loves poetry, is a great vehicle for um, self-expression as well as speaking metaphor, I feel, helps us touch the subconscious and it helps us touch the heart in the way that we can't maybe with facts and figures and... um, things that are more empirical all right and tell me about the poetry book that you have published so she was is a collection of poetry that i've published all about the incredible women that have touched my life and each poem is a woman and there are definitely themes running through the work that should land on the hearts of the reader and remind them of the incredible women in their lives that have impacted them. Uh, Who are some of the women that you uh, address in your poems? You know, it's interesting because they come from all different walks of life and all different times in my life. So we have teachers, social workers, physicians, and and most of them are are helped me. When did you start uh, learning yoga, and how did you become a yoga instructor? So yoga has been part of my life for about a decade, and I started actually in the Bikram practice, which is very quite controversial now, um, and. It's a very traditional hatha practice that I learned how to teach under. And that was on the side of Kicking Horse Mountain with Sacred Seed Yoga and Ayurvedic School from Edmonton, actually. I got my certification through them. And I continued the work on myself personally and teaching a little bit, sort of dipping my toe in. 
And um, yeah, now the space is more dedicated to mental health. And I feel like the language of mental health, it's a little bit easier for people to put their brains around. Not everybody uh, resonates with the language of yoga as much, but it's so it's a bit of a combination. So you did attend the University of Calgary. Uh, what program did you take? Yay! Yes, I am a proud alumni. I took my BA uh, in anthropology, and it was a wonderful experience. And part of my experience there was um, going on a field study to West Africa, which was the highlight for sure. I did see that you enjoy reading uh, National Geographic growing up. So did you always want to travel? Absolutely. Yeah, I lived in my own world, right? I grew up in rural Alberta, like so many of us. And my first escape was through books. And then my second escape was through travel. And, and that's how I saw myself. That's how I found people like me. And it was the best education I ever experienced was traveling. And that started with National Geographic piquing my interest in the world. And so uh, what was your experience like in West Africa? Oh, it was incredible. Yeah, I feel like what I learned there was that culture is very, very sophisticated and, and different, but human beings are all the same. Our needs are the same. And I think that it's really important to remember that, you know, in a time that's uh, extremely, uh, in a time of extreme change, it's really, really important to remember our humanity and poetry brings, brings us back to that. Do you have a poem you can read from your book? You bet I do. So this poem is actually uh, dedicated to someone in the arts. She's a visual artist as well, and I met her at a festival that I worked at. She was larger than four circle shows with long lines snaking about the square. There was no holier place than the face of a child touched by her brush. She was foster mothering mermaids in fantasy. Each fanciful card collected its own masterpiece. She was a collection of clay vaginas shaped like the rare flowers saturating her arched garden always. Celebrating, gathering, laughing. Well, yeah, that is pretty, uh, pretty nice. So thank you for that. And I guess, uh, what do you see yourself doing in the, I guess, new future? Uh, will you uh, be continuing to promote your book? Absolutely. Yeah, I actually just joined the Writers Guilds of Alberta, and I encourage anyone that has an interest or love of writing to do that. And I'm going to continue to do the work and hopefully workshop this book, too. It's a lot of fun talking to other other writers and other survivors, and yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, anything you'd like to add? I would just like to say that if anybody out there is listening to this and they are suffering, please don't suffer alone. Whatever that looks like, you can ask for help, reach out. And um, particularly our In Sexual Violence Awareness Month, it's really, really important to know that you are not alone.
And I guess, um, how can folks uh, purchase your book? They can shoot me an email at surrenderliving at gmail.com. All right. Thank you very much, Sabrina, for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Jenny again. That was my interview with poet and UC alumna Sabrina Samuel. She was here to talk about her book of poetry, She Was. Visit surrenderliving.com for more information. CJSW, from our hearts to your receiver. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. If you're a true book lover, you know that some of the best books often don't come from big box stores or multinational marketplaces. One-of-a-kind treasures can be found in hole-in-the-wall thrift shops and independent bookstores that will have your friends asking, where on earth did you get that? That's the name of the antique mall in Airdrie I visited, in search of a new old book. It's a giant mall full of things you never knew you needed, like a vintage bubblegum machine, a Snoopy lamp, and a postcard collection with hundreds if not thousands of postcards from all over the world. Behind this postcard collection is a shelf full of old books covering all kinds of different topics. I considered a few of them in search of the perfect one. Some of my favorites were a book about Houdini and another about women and murder mysteries. I eventually settled on Strange Stories Amazing Facts, described on the cover as a collection of stories that are bizarre, unusual, odd, astonishing, and often incredible. In true vintage style, the cover sleeve is completely worn, and I found three makeshift bookmarks tucked within various sections of the book's 600 pages. An old After Eight chocolate mint wrapper, a City of Calgary employee calendar, and an old flyer. These traces of the previous owner make me think that these strange stories were a source of much entertainment for someone, somewhere, at some time. The book was published in 1976 by Reader's Digest, and it got me thinking, I've heard the name Reader's Digest, and I'm sure I've picked it up and skimmed through the pages at some point, but what is it really, and where did it come from? For those of you who are also curious, here's what I found. The magazine started in 1922, when the founder, DeWitt Wallace, was recovering from shrapnel wounds that he received in World War I. The magazine was a curatorial project, with Wallace picking some of his favorite stories from past publications and publishing them in a condensed and compact form. This is what eventually led to its slogan, America in Your Pocket. The magazine had a little bit of everything, from a vocabulary quiz to a vibrant humor section and a feature called My Most Unforgettable Character. In this section, authors took their turn describing the most memorable person they had ever met. Another popular section is called Things They Won't Tell You, where business professionals give insider advice about what it's like to do their job or work in the industry. It was also a source of cutting-edge journalism. A piece that stands out is Joseph C. Furnas's article, And Sudden Death, which reported on the safety hazards of cars, and some say even led to the implementation of seatbelt laws. But back to our weird book at hand. You may be wondering, what kind of strange stories does it tell? The editors of the book say they wanted to provide a literary smorgasbord, or a Disneyland for readers. And the book does not disappoint. So let's dive in. Let's start off where the previous owner left off, 
where that chocolate mint wrapper was left to mark a place to return to. This section is called Cheating Death by Freezing, and the byline reads, The Remarkable Science of Ultra-Coldness. What's interesting about this is that cryogenics, or cryonics, which is the preservation of the body through freezing, with the intent of one day being unfrozen and brought back to life, was popular around the time that this book was published. The chapter mentions the collection of frozen corpses that are near Los Angeles, and which have been there since 1967 at the time of the book's publication in the mid-70s. The possibility of rejuvenation, the book says, is little more than a dream now, but future scientists may make it come true. The book also says how much this process would cost, starting from $7,000 to $15,000, to be put in a state of cryogenic suspension, and about $700 a year after that for storage costs. I can't help but wonder if these bodies are still there today, almost 50 years later, and if those people put enough money aside for rent. The cover of the book teases the reader to look into its pages in order to find out how such words as jeep and quiz and gerrymander came into the language. Here's what the book says about the history of the word quiz. In about 1780, so the story goes, a Dublin theatre manager named Daly made a bet that within 24 hours he could introduce a new word into the English language. He spent a whole night chalking the letters quiz on walls throughout the city, and the next day, the strange word was on everyone's lips, yet nobody knew what it meant. Thus, it became a byword for a jokey puzzle. Later, it came to mean a set of puzzling questions, or as a verb, to interrogate someone. If you enjoyed this segment, be sure to tune in to Writer's Block next month, when I visit another secondhand bookstore in search of a new weird book. When you're feeling under pressure, try something different. Eat an orange, or listen to CJSW 90.9 FM. Francisco Sonia Jose is one of the most widely read Filipino writers in the English language. Jose's English works have been translated into 28 languages, including Korean, Indonesian, Czech, Russian, Latvian, Ukrainian, and Dutch. CJSW volunteer Vincent Yang reviews Jose's powerful short story, The God Stealer, for this episode of Writer's Block. Sonil Jose. Jose is a Philippine national artist for literature. Sonil Jose was born to a poor family in Philippines in Pangasinan, famous for mangoes and fishing farms on December 1924. He's still active in championing the rights of poor and marginalized Filipinos till today. His short stories depict the social underpinnings of class struggles and colonialism in his society. In his short story, The God Stealer, he puts the spotlight on these economic classes and changes. It examines the relationship between culture and economy and the rifts that occur when people change economic classes. I would like to quote from Jose in his 2001 novel, The God Stealer, 
and other short stories. We write from life and call it literature. And literature lives because we are in it. In The God Stealer, Jose explores the macro-political economic domination themes powerfully as well as the human struggle for dignity and identity amid modernization and urbanization. These themes are still very prevalent in society today. Not only Jose is an observer of life, but uses his literary talent in stirring up critical questions in the mind of the readers. In the plot, The God Stealer begins as a story of a friendship that developed in the setting of an international company in the city of Manila. Sam Christie, an American, and Philip Latak, a Filipino, goes to the Cordilleras Mountains to look at the rice terraces which were built by the Filipinos' ancestors, the Ifugao tribe. There, amid the beautiful and breathtaking countryside, they find the meaning of their friendship, how it defines the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. During a feast honouring Philip on his return to his village, Philip and Sam go through a series of self-realisation and conflicts that spins off from the feast. Difference of cultural understanding between a foreigner and a local, between rural folk and urban dwellers, sets up the major conflict of the plot. Through the unwillingness of the Ifugao people to sell any Ifugao god statues, Philip then hatches a plan to steal his grandfather's god in return for the salary raise given to him by Sam. After finding out his god was missing, Philip's grandfather dies. The God Stealer is not just a tale about an Ifugao stealing a religious god, but questions about the relationship that develops between a Filipino and an American. It explores the colonized and colonizer relationship with humanity in the center of the story. Let's look at the characters. Ifugao is named after the term Ipugo, which translates to people of the hill. Ifugao is a tribal group of wet rice agriculturalists occupying the mountainous area of North Luzon in Philippines. The rice terraces of the Philippine Cordilleras and Banawe rice terraces are the main tourist attractions in the province. Philip Latak, Ipik. He is a native Ifugao who has converted to Christianity and who has spent the last few years working alongside Sam Christie in Manila. Philip is derived from the word Philippines. He becomes less sentimental with his own cultural identity, beliefs and custom. Sam is derived from Uncle Sam, a representation of the United States, an American who wanted to view the rice terrace and interested in purchasing an original figurine of the Ifugao god. In the story, Jose cleverly used the images symbols to illustrate the glaring differences between the colonizer and the simple native folk. I quote, Out of a bottle of white label, in the back which also contained bars of candy and cartons of secrets and matches for the natives. In another line, Rice wine! I hope there's still a jar around when I, we get to our grandfathers. White label whiskey versus traditional homemade rice wine. Another juxtapose he poses. It's like New England in the spring, Sam said. In winter, when it really gets cold, 
I can still go around quite naked by your standards? Philip replies, But it's really cold. In these instances, Hosea uses the winter season in to highlight seemingly superior complexity. Philip rattles off. I quote the words he used. The village doctor, Mumbo Jumbo, he danced to drive away the evil spirit that gotten hold of me, the gongs and stamping. And the doctor asked Sam. He was broad-minded, Philip said, still laughing. What a contrasting difference that Jose did to depict the traditional village doctor and western doctor. Jose describes explicitly the pedestal respect by the local people which still exist today. In the novel, the bus finally came and Sam Christie, because he was a foreigner, was given the seat of honour next to the driver. In another part of the novel, turning to Sam, Philip said, Give it to them, maybe they like you better. His open palm brimming with the tinsel wrapped sweets, in another moment, it was all noise. The children scrambling over the young American and Philip is depicted as not proud of his native background. Not remembering his original native name, Epic, when his relatives recognised him in his village. That was the first sign. Further down in the novel, Hell, I was never so embarrassed in my life, Philip Latak said shaking his head on his grandfather as the village doctor. Throughout the story, we see two social classes in the personas of Sam and Philip. Sam Christie is the upper class, while Philip Latak is the lower class. Even their names are indicative of their status. Sam is the rich foreigner, is treated with deference and respect, while Philip, regardless of what he achieved, is treated with contempt. This shows that the lower class is not only the oppressed and looked down upon by other classes. They do this to themselves as well. Even Philip himself is demissive of his culture. The villagers are aware that Sam is upper class, so they treat him as such and they see Philip as a lower class, pretending to be something else. Despite their contempt of Philip, we see that some of them want to be modern city yuppies or upper class, as evidenced by Sadiq, Philip's brother, wearing Philip's cast off clothes and the eager of acceptance of the candies and other products. On the other hand, Philip's grandfather is openly disdainful of Sam and the upper class. It is a love-hate relationship that is similar to crap mentality. The lower class wants to be upper class, yet they hate people who become part of that class. Philip, like many young people from the rural, till today are attracted to the city and feels no future in the rural. The start of urban sprawl? In the novel, I quote, And you say that these terraces do not produce enough food for the people? Philip Latap turned quizzically to him. Hell! If I can live here, why would I go to Manila? I thought the city had won you so completely that you have forgotten this humble place and its humble people. You see, Sam, Sadiq says, 
my brother dislikes me. Like my grandfather, he feels that I shouldn't have left this place and I should have rot here. Hell, everyone knows the terrors are good for the eye, but they can't produce enough for the stomach. Yet in Hosea's beautifully describes the simplicity of the native and rural folks. They are all human beings. But look what is in this mountain. Lock country. It is poor. Let there be no doubt about it. They don't make enough to eat. But there is less greed here and pettiness here. There is no land grabbers, no scandal. Jose observes the hoarding and possessive mentality of the rich, equating it with antique collections. In the novel, the samurai thought, you should have seen the place where I got it and the people I had to deal with to get it. It belonged to a soldier who fought in the South Pacific and became a prisoner. But his daughter, it's a sad story. She had to go to college, she was majoring English and she didn't have tuition money. The irony that money can destroy the bridge to historical and ancestral past just because the rich believe they can collect antiques as pieces of art display in their living room. Philip stole the Ifuga god and that was the cause of his grandfather's death. Philip has a conscience, as in the novel. I could forgive myself for having stolen it, but the old man, he had always been wise, Sam. He knew that it was I who did it from the very start. He wanted so much to believe it wasn't I. But he couldn't pretend, and neither can I. I killed him, Sam. I killed him because I wanted to be free from this. These cursed terraces. Because I wanted to be grateful. I killed him who loved me most. Philip's act of thievery represented the Filipinos giving up on their past tribal origins and traditions, only to be replaced by an unnatural culture brought by the colonialism. Philip expresses his guilt and his reason for settling to stay on the mountains, the seed of righteousness and goodness planted by Philip's grandfather and parents is still alive despite the weeds of modern city life stifling its growth. In the novel, I'm not coming. It was no longer voice. It was something elemental and distressing. I'm not going back to you here. You can bring the whole mountain with you if you care. The God, my grandfather's God, isn't it enough payment for your kindness? Powerful words from Philip reflecting his return to his real self, Epic, a human being with strong values. This is a short story review of God Stealer from Philippines from CJSW 90.9, your community radio. Tune into Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM next month for more volunteer reads and recommendations. You have been listening to Writer's Block here at CJSW. Thanks again to our two interviewees for this week, Mark and Sabrina, as well as Rachel and Crystal for their fantastic readings. If you missed anything today or want to check out some of our fantastic previous shows, don't forget to go to www.cjsw.com and listen to the podcast of any of our shows. On behalf of the Writer's Block Collective, we would like to thank everyone for listening to our show for the past hour. 
Keep it locked to CGSW 90.9 FM and listen to Classic Cool up next.